0: Visit myflexlearning.com backslash B-E to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash B-E. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the Bee Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-aged kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 123 of the De facto Leaders podcast on the B Podcast Network. Today I am talking about creating equitable systems for K-12 math with special guest Jonathan Regino. I wanted to answer a couple questions that come up a lot when it comes to understanding math curriculum as well as math interventions. So things like Do flashcards help improve basic numeracy skills? Should we use calculators as a special ed accommodation? How many years of math do we really need to take in high school to prepare us for whatever we're doing after high school? I invited Jonathan to the show to answer some of these questions. With the science of reading on the forefront in many districts, we're starting to have a better understanding of the scope and sequence of English and language arts, But this doesn't always translate over to math curriculum so that's why i wanted to invite jonathan to the show to get his take on things jonathan is a highly accomplished educator with a diverse range of experiences in the field of education beginning as a middle school math and science teacher in pennsylvania he quickly established himself as a dedicated and passionate educator Transitioning from the classroom, he became a teaching and learning specialist at the Delaware County Intermediate Unit, providing invaluable support to educators and enhancing teaching practices throughout the county. As an educational consultant with the Pennsylvania Bureau of Special Ed, he developed strategies for working with students with special needs within the math and STEM classrooms. Jonathan's work as a curriculum developer at Age of Learning and as a facilitator and program manager for Code.org in Eastern Pennsylvania showcased his commitment to innovative learning experiences and computer science education. He is currently the supervisor of math at the Inner Borough School District in Pennsylvania. In this conversation, we discuss a number of topics, including common gatekeeper skills for math that can predict as well as prevent success with more advanced math concepts, the ins and outs of common math interventions and accommodations, including when and how we should allow calculators or use math flashcards, How to use the concrete representational abstract model to teach numeracy and understanding of print symbols and why it's important to actually write those print symbols and then finally we wrap up with talking about just how often are teachers searching for supplemental math materials and how is this impacting equity i focused a lot on literacy but there are so many parallels between what needs to happen with literacy and what needs to happen with math. In this episode, we talk a lot about problem solving and analytical skills, which fall under the umbrella of executive functioning. So that's why before we get going, I wanted to mention the School of Clinical Leadership, my program for related service providers who want to take a leadership role in implementing executive functioning support on their IEP teams. This program is for you if you are in some kind of a support role and you know that your students need support with executive functioning, maybe they are having behavior problems in the classroom, they appear to be unmotivated, but really you know that they just need support with planning, execution, and strategic thinking, as well as some of the language skills that would fall under the umbrella of executive functioning. It's so important to have the support across the students' day, which is why it's critical for people who are providing those therapy services to support teachers in the classrooms. So to learn how to put those supports in place, check out the School of Clinical Leadership. You can learn more about the program at drindacbrennan.com backslash clinical leadership. Now please enjoy this interview with Jonathan Regino. Today, I am joined by Jonathan Regino, a math curriculum specialist. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you. So I thought we'd start off by having you share a little bit about your background. You have a really interesting um, career trajectory, and I know that you have another transition that you're about to make. So you can just share, can you share a little bit about your background and what you're doing now?
1: Sure. I was a middle school math and science teacher for 10 years. And then I, uh, I needed something new, so I started working for the county, and I got to work with um, all the districts in my area, um, from math, to science, computer science, tech, everything that they need help with. Um, from there, I actually went to go work for the training arm of the Bureau of Special Ed for Pennsylvania, um, trying to build up my skill sets on the special ed side. And then I uh, had the opportunity to be a supervisor of math and then a supervisor of STEM in a local district. So I got to pull all those pieces together and use them in a new way. Um, after that, I started working for um, Age of Learning, which is um, the company that puts out ABC Mouse. And I am uh, building out curriculum for them on the middle school level. And by the time this airs, I will actually be back in the supervisor role for a district as a K-12 math supervisor.
0: Great. Great. So I know we, we connected just in the, within the ed tech space, and I was trying to learn a little bit about how things work. I, what I think is really interesting is that, you know, how all the different companies are using the tech side and the curriculum side and pulling it all together. But really, I think what it comes down to is that we still need to understand what good curriculum is and what the scope and sequence is. So. In one of your presentations, you talked a lot about creating equitable systems for math and that there were three components to that to make sure that we're preparing kids for the workforce and for all of the different things that they need to be able to do once they leave high school. So what are those three components and what goes under each of them?
1: Sure. So when I I think about what's happening in the K-12 space, one of the things that's like a buzzword in education right now are those gatekeepers. So the idea that, you know, if you want to get into college, if you want to go into the workforce, you have to get through Algebra 1. And hopefully you get that that uh, Algebra 1 geometry, Algebra 2 sandwich, and you can make it even beyond those courses. But that Algebra 1 becomes the gatekeeper for so many students. It's the make it or break it course um, for the future. The other piece that comes up, and this has been coming out a lot more um, in the last couple of years, the idea of progressions and the skills that build up um, through over throughout time. So you know what does a kid before they come to school learn what do they learn in kindergarten, first grade? you know we when we typically think about what's happening in school, we think about basic facts and then we think about fractions and they start to progress that way. But the idea of, of just learning how to add, there are hundreds of sub skills that build up to being able to add, And a lot of that's missing from um, what's in schools right now. And then that last piece is, you know, since uh, No Child Left Behind and ESSA and Race to the Top, all those um, big national pushes for education have have really focused on ELA and building up reading in schools. And all the other subjects kind of got put to the side with that thought that if we could raise the... The reading scores across the school districts. All the other subjects would um, increase in scores as well, and as a result of that, you know, teachers really struggle with intervening in in math. They they struggle with uh, science and they struggle with social studies um, with helping students that like, get off track at any point.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen that with math as well, and I remember this from being in the schools and then also just talking to people recently in you know, who are working at curriculum companies, they're like, okay, we kind of know what we're supposed to be doing over here with reading. Obviously, there's still a lot of debate about certain things, but we have a lot of interventions in place when it comes to reading. But math, we're still kind of figuring things out over here. And it's like, I'm just thinking about, I left the schools back in 2018, and we're still kind of having that conversation. So when you're thinking about those gatekeeper skills or some of the common skills that are core foundational skills within progressions, what are some things that kids um, that need to know when it comes to numerical concepts that they don't necessarily know or that aren't being addressed adequately?
1: Yeah, so if you go into most schools right now and you ask, what are the big things that kids are struggling with in math? you'll start to get commonalities, right? There's lots of things that are happening, but the commonalities that come out are basic facts, fractions, and word problems. And if those two things keep getting called out over and over again, there's, there's got, there has to be some larger systematic issues that this happening all over the place, not just in one school district, not in just one state, but all over our country. Um, And the idea that if you don't master these concepts as you, go up in math, you start to lose the ability to be successful in some of the higher stuff. So we know for algebra, there's a positive correlation that if you are are strong and secure in fractions, you tend to do much better in algebra. And if you keep working backwards, uh, to be secure and strong in fractions, it comes down to the early numismic concepts of um, place value and um, just being able to understand what a number is and how to use a number so we can go all the way back to kindergarten and really build on the key skills that build up to algebra.
0: There were some things that came out of, and like for the ELA side, one of the things is vocabulary. So if you know, you look at kids' vocabulary skills in early elementary, we know that those are going to be the the things that are predictive of kids who are strong in reading comprehension. And I imagine there's something similar to math where if we look at this, these are the skills in early elementary and what are, you know, these are the skills that tend to predict how kids do in math. So what are those things for math? Is it those things like fractions and place value?
1: Yeah. If we go, if we go to the earliest, our earliest kids, like pre-K and kindergarten we're starting to look at things like cardinality, one-to-one correspondence. So like that idea that um, a kid can count a set, know what's in the set, um, can identify not just count numbers in the sequence, but identify objects in order and name those objects. So most textbooks in kindergarten start with the idea of count all and count on. So I can count one, two, three, four, and then five, six, seven, eight, or count on where I start at four and I count five, six, seven, eight. Those two things are where most kindergartens start off in September. um, And they really have to master that to get to making fives and making tens. A kid who can count off, count on, make fives, make tens, they they see those relationships with the numbers. They're going to be fine. They're going to be successful all the way through. There's kids who fall off really early on their skills, like a kid who can't transition from count all to count on or takes most of the year to, to transition from that skill. There, there's some red flags that pop out right away that they are missing some key concepts. And we need to go back in time. Even, you know, if the textbook starts on count all and they're struggling there to transition to count on, then we need to go back and figure out what skills do they miss pre-kindergarten and You know, did they miss cardinality? Did they miss the count sequence or one-to-one correspondence? Um, where in that in that preschool era did they not catch on to these concepts?
0: So when you say count all, is that when you look at, you know, a set of five and you know you just can look at it and say that's five things right there. Is that what count all is? Or is it just counting in a group?
1: So that would be subitizing, which is another huge skill at Mm -hmm. the elementary level. So one through five. They should be able to. You should be able to flash a group of objects up, and a kid should be able to say what it is Mm -hmm. um, up to five. After it goes past five, it gets a little bit more complicated. The count all would be if I have a a set of counters in one pile and a set of counters in another pile, and I'm trying to combine those two piles together. You know, typically a kid would start to count the first pile and then continue counting to that second pile, and uh, eventually they'll get to the point where they can subitize that first pile. And then they count on from there um, for the second pile.
0: Okay. So it's like here's five and then six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and you go on from there. So they don't have to right. start again once they put the two groups together from one. They can just say, okay, there's five here, and now I'm gonna add on to that one at a time. Right. Okay. And then so there was count all, and then what's count count on?
1: Count on, count on would be starting with that five and then okay. one, two. Starting with five and then six, seven, eight afterwards.
0: Okay. Yeah. See, there is there's so many similarities between this and the way that you think about literacy instruction because a lot of things that people don't realize when it comes to sight words, for example, where it's you see a letter that is a symbol that means something. So it means that it, you know, it goes with this sound that I can make and that means something cognitively. There's you know, the meaning behind the you see a, a letter B and you think B, and you know that, you know, when you see that at the beginning of the word bat, you know, to make that sound and those those letters that go together, you can immediately recognize that without having to sound it out. I mean, obviously, when you're first starting, you have to sound it out, but you have, eventually get to that recognition and automaticity. So it sounds like the the concept of count all is. It's very similar and that you want kids to see this symbol and make that immediate recognition of what it is or see a group of things and immediately know that's three pieces of candy or whatever it is that's right there.
1: Right. So that that idea with the literacy and teaching the letter B and the sound of a B and what does B mean when it's in the middle of a word, the end of a word, the beginning of a word, that's the same idea that we should be doing for numbers. Yeah. Um, we should spend the time of actually, you know, how do you sound out the number? How do you say the number? How do you spell the number? What does it look like? Like all those representations mm-hmm. need to be present the same way that we teach a letter. Some of the earliest errors that kids have in school is actually with the handwriting of their numbers yeah. and that the, the amount of brain power it takes to actually write the numbers the correct way. We don't spend enough time teaching how to write the numbers. We do with letters, but we kind of skip that when it comes to numbers. and. Some of the first errors happen with that ability to actually write the numbers. And that leads to the kids who um, start to flip their numbers. So they write the fives Mm -hmm. backwards or they write the three backwards. And then we get to 21 and 12s, which they mix up all the time. And those are all the the skills that we could fix if we followed that ELA side of the way that we teach the letters and the words. And that's where the, the science of reading really has an impact on the very early stages of math.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense because I think about the difference between typing a word and writing a word. There's just something neurologically different about writing a written symbol on a piece of paper, whether it's a number or whether it's a letter. And I think that obviously we want to take advantage of technology and utilize it for its benefits, but let's not forget about the print side of things and actually writing those numbers and writing those letters.
1: Yes, I totally agree.
0: Yeah. Okay. So it's just, it's so interesting, all the different, the different parallels here. And I know that when I was working with uh, one of my special ed teachers, there were, there was, there were the math, you know, the numerical concepts, and then there's the vocabulary. And obviously that's where I came in, where, you know, sometimes kids, if they didn't necessarily have those basic numeracy concepts, and then you're throwing on these more difficult vocabulary words, like, you know, measurement and looking at a clock and understanding the passage of time and these other more difficult concepts that you have to think about when you have word problems, you're you're layering one concept on top of another. And so it's like, you know, sometimes I felt like, Some of the kids that I was working with, I would be trying to work on these more difficult vocabulary words. And and I'd always wonder, are there some other prerequisite things that could have been addressed here that could maybe make these more difficult things more solid? Um, And that makes me think about word problems and when we start to integrate those. And I know that you have some thoughts on how that's done. Can you share a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So this, this is one of those areas I've been working on uh, nonstop for the, the better part of a year now. Uh, I feel like the way that we approach word problems is disconnected from the research and even the information that's coming out of ELA and the science of reading. Right now, you go into a textbook and at the end of every lesson, there's a word problem. The issue with that is that word problems are actually two pieces. You have the comprehension side, the ELA side, and then you have the content side. And what you're asking a kid to do is combine comprehension and content into one problem and coming out with a solution. If a kid isn't strong with the comprehension piece, right? They're not at great level of comprehension. They're struggling with reading. We're asking them to do something that they're not expected to do in ELA yet. And then on the flip side, if they haven't mastered the content, We're asking them to take words that they haven't learned. So if we say we're adding these two numbers together, they're not able to do it because it's a foreign language at this point. Too many times the kids mimic what's happening, what they learned in a lesson. So if the whole lesson was on addition, well, then every word problem is going to be on addition. So I don't actually have to use those two skills. I ignore the reading. I ignore the math. I just pull the two numbers and I solve it. What we need to do is introduce kids to the comprehension side, you know, let's teach word problems to comprehension, not even solve a word problem yet, but really break down the word problems. And there's things like three read strategies and numberless word problems that do a very good job of breaking down the comprehension side. And then I would push, we shouldn't even solve the word problem. Like we can introduce the word problem, we can talk through it, but we shouldn't even push the students to solve it until they've mastered the content. And it takes about four to five weeks to master content. So, you know, if you think about that, If I'm introducing, adding one digit by one digit numbers, I'm waiting two, three weeks before I introduce a word problem to their students. I'm giving them enough time to totally understand and completely understand how to add one digit by one digit before I throw some words at them and and create a novel context. You know, word problems are that novel context. It's pushing them beyond what they've learned and, and what they've mastered. So holding off a little bit, will will allow them to run a lot faster in the long run.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense. I can just remember back to when I was doing word problems as a student. And I remember just, it it would be so frustrating because it was like, why does it make sense over here? And then I get over here and I don't know what I'm doing. I can think about that all the way from when I was in grade school through, I don't know, I'm thinking back to my my physics class. I mean, where you really have to apply these things and it's that whole carryover thing where it's, it makes sense in this one really structured setting when you've essentially solved the problems for me. I think that there's many times when we provide kids with these additional cues on the steps without realizing that we're doing it. And then all of a sudden we pull it away and have them try to do it in a word problem without realizing that how much structure we were giving them in this other context right so oh gosh i'm trying to think about when we're thinking about the the content and the vocabulary we talked about place value we talked about fractions when we make that transition and because i know that this was something that came up a lot for me when i was on teams in the schools where it's on the reading side it's do we work on phonological awareness and decoding or do we move over to comprehension and with math because a lot of times we didn't know how to intervene a lot of it was just drilling the math facts which which to me is the math equivalent of drilling sight words which yes. you know on the sight word side if you're not actually teaching kids to make connections between the letters and the sounds site work rec- recognition, you're going to have poor transfer, I would imagine that there's something that's very similar with the math facts and actually helping that to translate over to a sense of just the numerical concepts. So how, how do you handle those types of things? Is it useful to practice math facts? How do we work that in and make it useful?
1: Yeah, so, so th- there's a huge the 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 signs the signs of reading wars that that have been happening the same things happening on the math side right yeah. so there is a a push to never do time tests but we also know that if you don't have things at the ready then you're using more brain power and you only mm-hmm. have so much brain power that you can use before you've exhausted it and and you need a break mm-hmm. so typically if a kid can recall a an answer within three seconds it's a net long-term memory at that point. Mm-hmm. So if we're thinking about basic facts, the idea is, is you can recall within three seconds, sometimes two seconds, um, depending on what research you're looking at. But when it comes to the, the um, flashcards, flashcards get a bad rap because of the way that we do it. Typically, we just flash up the card, the kid gives the answer, we put it in the yes pile, the no pile, and we keep going. And then eventually we get a pile of like everything that the kid doesn't know, and we've pulled out everything that they did know. And I don't know about you, but growing up, very rarely did I feel good when I was faced with just all the negativity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are ways to stack that deck where we put knowns and unknowns mixed in in a specific way so that every few cards, a kid gets a known card. They get that small win. they keeps them positive, keeps them going. Uh, we also tend to drop those known cards too soon. We need to keep them in the pile a couple of times to make sure that it wasn't a fluke, make sure that the kid actually masters it and to give them that positive feedback. But if we if we take a step back and we actually think about interventions um, at the specifically at the elementary level, what we're looking for is um, what skill, what specific like, concept or skill the kid is struggling in, which a lot of programs out there in schools do. But then that next step is what's missing. So once we know the skill, what we need to figure out, is it a fluency issue? Is it acquisition? Is it um, uh, like a motivation problem? Is it a conceptual issue? Is it a procedural issue? Because each one of those has a very specific type of intervention that goes with it. You know, if it's a fluency issue, it means that they understand the concept. They just haven't gotten to the point where it's uh, quick and it's within that three second idea. And those flashcards are amazing for that. But mm-hmm. if the kid is is in that acquisition phase and they haven't even mastered the idea of adding or multiplying or whatever the flashcards are going to be, flashcards aren't going to do anything for them. Yeah. So a lot of times kids get put on these uh, like computer programs in school with that idea of, well, if we just give them more time, it's it's the same ideas of, as using flashcards. Putting a kid who is struggling with the basic facts on a computer program, you're not going to see the bump that you would if you actually intervene based off of their need instead of just a general more of the same idea
0: yeah that's something that i see a lot across multiple content areas in schools where it's let's just do more and sometimes you're doing more of what wasn't working now sometimes it is an intensity issue and you do just need to increase the dose or maybe have kids go in a smaller group but there has to be that fit so So you're saying that there might be some kids who just don't understand the concept of the numerical symbols or the concept of adding. So in that case, we might need to be more working with manipulatives to help them to develop that sense of what this five plus two on this flashcard even means. But once we get to that point, then there's probably this... um, this stage where, okay, now we can transition to the flashcards, but we need to also make sure that we're not just dumping a bunch of concepts that kids don't know. So maybe like, maybe they're good with single digits, but they don't have, you know, like maybe they know five plus two, but they don't know 11 plus two or something like that, where you're just strategically figuring out, okay, now we've transitioned over to the flashcards and we need to figure out how within the flashcards to scaffold this a little bit.
1: Right.
0: Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I, you know, and that's, again, I see the same thing with other areas where people are like, well, flashcards are bad. It's like, well, it depends how you're using them. Are the flashcards right. appropriate? Are you using concepts that are too difficult for students when you're introducing the flashcards? Because yeah, then of course it's going to be frustrating, but right. Yeah. That makes sense. So what about when we're thinking, because as I'm I'm thinking about students who maybe have a hard time with the problem solving and the planning. This is obviously very related to math because there's so much, you know, so many analytical skills and so many steps and, you know, problem solving and and things like that. And when you have a math problem, a lot of times there's the start of the process and then there's the finished product, but there's a lot of steps that need to go into getting to that finished product. So there's probably a lot of kids where they might start off over here going in the right direction and then get off track. So how do you think about providing support so that kids are not getting too frustrated, but at the same time, you're, you're challenging them.
1: So let's start global first. One of the things that, that um, happened with the common core coming out for math anyway, is that um, there's a ton of changes without a whole lot of support on what those changes actually mean. Right. So, um, my my generation went to school. We learned one way. The kids that are out there right now are learning a different way. They are connected, but that idea of how they're connected is missing, mm-hmm. right? So if we think of something like we can go way way ahead, and we think about quadratics, right? The the thing you needed to know for algebra one, the very basic idea of quadratics is uh, making an area model, and that area model is something that they learned in kindergarten. And if you could bridge that idea of why it's important to do arrays in the area model in kindergarten, and you can build it all the way up to algebra one, then those concepts aren't um, single one-off ideas that I'm learning just this year. Part of the problem that happens over time is that we lose that connection of, I learned this in kindergarten, it built to this idea in elementary school, and it built to this idea in middle school. But because we disconnect all those pieces, a kid doesn't see the array or the area model with quadratics, and they don't understand why it was important in elementary school to learn it that way, right? So they they automatically jump to the algorithm. And then when they get up to Algebra 1, well, that algorithm was great and it, it moved you really quickly. But you missed all this understanding that would make quadratics a lot easier. So if we could connect all those pieces and really help teachers understand how are all these ways of teaching, all these models that we use, like the number line and ratios and the area model, like how do they build over time all the way through algebra? I think we would get um, a lot more understanding on their student side and a lot less students struggling as we move to more complex ideas because we can connect the dots a lot easier. If we're talking like right now, present, if I walk into a school and the kid's really struggling, first thing I'm going to do is is interview them and ask them questions, kind of get their idea of, of where the disconnect is. The second thing I'm going to try to do is bringing more concrete ideas to that idea of CRA or CPA, that concrete representational abstract. So I want them to manipulate objects to solve a problem. So if we think about quadratics in that area model, I'm going to have them use algebra tiles and build the actual area model, build the rectangle before I even introduce the algorithm to them. I want them to understand what's happening in the background and then move them into that algorithm piece. Because if we just jump to the algorithm, then there's 25 steps to remember, right? This is the same with division. The reason why kids fall off with division is they don't really understand what's happening. They don't even understand that there's two different types of division. They just memorize an algorithm, and now it's a bunch of steps, and we mix up the steps. But if they could break it down and understand conceptually what's happening, how it's connected to multiplication, and what are those two types of division, then there's less of a fall off and a less of an understanding that happens in the classroom.
0: So you're saying with with the area model, the at the basic level, it's using, you use the example of tiles and creating different shapes and seeing how that occupies the space? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so then by the time you get to algebra, it's just a bunch of gobbledygook. And you're just like, what are the steps to finish this problem? That's so that's the other thing with steps, where you have to have this. Uh, and you said CRA, so that's concrete. What was the
1: representational, art?
0: representational, abstract. So it is important to figure out steps, and this could be, you know, steps to going upstairs to clean your room or doing an algebra problem, but but just having the understanding of what it is that you're doing and just really feeling it and understanding other than just knowing how to repeat these steps. Because otherwise, if it's if it's just the steps, you're just memorizing. And I think that's when it gets to that point where you're just, you might be able to do the problem right on that test, but immediately you've forgotten it. I nice. always felt like that with math. I wanted to take a quick break here and talk about the School of Clinical Leadership. I see so many parallels to executive functioning support and math curriculum. When I talk to math teachers, I always hear elements of executive functioning support embedded into some of the concepts that we teach in math, such as that abstract thinking, the analytical skills, the problem solving. But of course, if you have a student who needs support in this area, we need to layer it on top of the curriculum that's already happening which is why I have created the School of Clinical Leadership. The School of Clinical Leadership helps related service providers to design executive functioning support for their IEP teams. So if you are in a clinical role and you know that your team needs to be implementing support across the day and you want a framework for making that happen, even if you aren't in a leadership role, then check out the School of Clinical Leadership. You can learn more about the program at com backslash clinical leadership. Now let's get back to the interview. I remember my algebra teacher when I was a freshman in high school was like, yeah, you're probably never going to use this ever in your life. And I was like, why are you a math teacher if you're saying that?
1: I mean, like, so algebra takes everything you learned from kindergarten through eighth grade, and you got to actually use the content now. Like yeah. it should be the most exciting class that the kid gets to. The 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 ideas behind algebra is is the reason why the Marvel movies look so realistic. It's the reason why our cell phones can fit in our pockets. It's the reason why the the stuff that's going out into space, the way that they fold it, there's origami folds, mm-hmm. all based off algebra Algebra one concepts. The, like the the world is is surrounded by things that you learn in Algebra one. It's just like how do we connect what's happening out there to what they're learning on the page? And I think too many times we're we're worried that you know, our kids coming up, they, they don't know enough content. So we have to spend time, you know, teaching the details. And I think, like, systematically, we could fix that. We could go back to the elementary. We could redesign the way that we're teaching and and start to fix some of those ideas where kids making all the way to eighth grade and not know their basic facts or not know how fractions work. Mm-hmm. And if we can fix those errors earlier. We can really get into the fun and the exciting Parts of why so many math teachers love math.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so with um, when we're thinking about helping those students who who don't have those basic concepts, I've been involved in a lot of IEP meetings where we're trying to figure out, all right, how can we help move the student through the curriculum and provide appropriate accommodation so that they can continue to learn more advanced concepts? But to me, that's always been this really, um, really difficult line to walk, I guess, because on the reading side, there's the, the challenge of, all right, do we allow them to have someone read the social studies test to them? Because we want them to know the social studies content. It's not a reading comprehension assessment. So we don't want them to, you know, get a poor grade on this test if they know the concept just because their reading skills aren't where they should be on the math side. What I've seen is, well, let's let the student use a calculator so that they can do more advanced math concepts. And I don't know, I, I'm not really sure how I feel about that. What are your thoughts on figuring out accommodations, specifically the calculator accommodation? Like when is that appropriate? Is it ever appropriate? And you know, how do you do that?
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I think the calculator use, if if it's, you know, if we're, if we're adding numbers, you shouldn't be using calculator. But if we're at the point where we're learning one step equations and the calculator, the point isn't adding or subtracting the numbers. The point is actually knowing the steps on how to solve a one step equation. Then it makes sense to use the calculator because that's not the concept you're assessing or trying to figure out if the student knows.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But if you're going to use the calculator and you've got, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth graders who still haven't mastered the facts, you have to backfill. We can't just give them a tool and because they're always going to struggle if we, if we don't start to backfill some of those skills that they're missing. So a lot of schools have implemented MTSS and you have the, your tier one and tier two. At some point, you, you need to take the strategy. And for basic facts, you're talking 15 minutes a day, three times a week. That's all you need to start yeah. to move those kids in the right direction. It's not a lot of time. Um, most schools can find those 15 minutes, whether it happens before after school, or you figure out a period in school where a kid can grab 15 minutes and we can start to backfill some of those skills. I think in the meantime, yeah, we can use the calculator. But we ha- we can't just use the calculator and not try to help those kids because we're essentially sending them up to fail if we're not no. going to Backfill those skills.
0: Yeah, I don't think people realize that a little bit goes a long way. Because what you just said—that dose, that three times a week for 15 minutes—it's very similar with with literacy. So let's say that a student needed support in both areas. So that would be 15 minutes a day. Well, I guess that would be six days a week. So, but yeah, so we're talking about six time slots for 15 minutes. You could probably figure out a way to do that if a student needed support in both areas. And like you said, backfill the skills. I've just seen that intervention specifically done pretty early on. And I've always wondered, mm-hmm, are, we, are we just kind of bypassing a skill that's actually going to help them learn those more difficult concepts? Right. Yeah.
1: yeah like I said, it, it, if we follow the brain science, right, we should be able to do a lot of these things within a short amount of time. Otherwise, we're using too much brain power. Even if a kid's using a calculator, we still have to know how those things work. Right. I've seen too many times where a kid was working on integers, put the integers in the wrong way, they get the wrong answer, but the calculator did it. So they write down the answer. Like they don't really understand the idea of how integers work. The same thing with the basic facts, even if they're using the calculator and they're plugging the numbers, if they don't really understand how it's working and why it works, as they progress. Um, through the grade levels, they need those ideas still, right mm-hmm. like when they if they make it to um some of the higher level math courses and they get back to um you know multiplying and dividing polynomials and adding and subtracting polynomials, like they still need those ideas of how to add and subtract and we can't put that into most of the calculators that they're using, mm-hmm. so you know, I hate to say that like we need the skill to be able to do this higher level skill, but that's the reality that that we're living in in schools right now. So if if we're going to give them the calculator and we're not going to fill, then we're automatically saying like, all right, when you get to high school, you, you, you're you're going to struggle. And we know you're going to struggle, but we're not worried about that because that's eight years from now.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's the application piece. How do you know what number to put into the calculator? When? How do you know how to use the tool? To me, this is very similar to using a digital timer or a watch when you don't have a sense of time. I mean, when you're using an analog clock, you can see, you know, the the minute hand moving with a digital clock. That's only meaningful to you if you can visually in your head, think about what does five minutes look and feel like. And that's, I just, I can think of so many kids in second grade, you know how sometimes on the math worksheets, they have the thing where you're like, you have to put, draw the hands on the clock. I've, I've worked with students who they didn't understand that the minute hand is moving. And so five o'clock where the minute hand is, and then 525, the minute hand, it's like, no, it's moving. It's going to look different. I can just think of a couple students who are arguing about that, but also everything is digital now. And so to me, it's a very similar thing where you have to know what those symbols mean. It's that abstract, concrete, um, all of those concepts.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember when my kids were little and you would say, you have 15 minutes left and they would respond like, how many Bluey shows is that? Or how many Elmo shows is that?
0: Yeah, well, you know, that's not, I, I think that making those associations, isn't that, isn't that crazy. Like when I, um, I used to say in my head, when I was running. And so if I look and I'm like, okay, I have a quarter mile left. I think, okay, one more lap around the track. Like there's a visual representation of that. And that's what I think of in my head when I think a quarter mile or a half mile or, and in, um, I mean, I think with numbers and length of time, you, you think about that as well. Or I think people don't realize that they do that where, when you think of the number five, you probably have something in your head that you're immediately thinking without realizing it just because it's so automatic. And those kids who don't have that concept yet aren't doing that. So there's that, I think the appreciation of how quickly like the, your brain can make those connections and, you know, where we might need to slow things down for kids who aren't getting it yet. Right. Okay, so I thought this was really interesting and I really related to it. but in in your presentation that you shared with me, you talked about there's there's calculus and then there's statistics and just different tracks you can get on after like when you're late high school through college. And um, so just my personal experience, I went through, I was grade level, so I did algebra, freshman year, then geometry. And then advanced algebra, that whole class, that year was just a train wreck, like half of my class dropped out and had to go back to algebra one. And I was barely sneaking by. And then I made it, I passed, but then I did not go on to calculus because I thought I barely made it through algebra two. How am I going to get through calculus? But then I got into college and I loved statistics. Like I just, it made so much sense to me and I kind of got it in my head. I'm not a math person because I didn't do well in Algebra Two. So, I know that you have just like looked into those different tracks. And so, what are the, I don't know, different possibilities as far as where you can go after Algebra Two?
1: Yeah. So there's there's a huge movement across the United States right now to create these pathways. And the pushback is people assume that that you're taking away calculus. But if you look at the numbers who actually get into AP calculus and and, um, take the AP test or um, actually make it to that level and continue with math, or how many kids make it to calculus and then have to take uh, calculus again in college, you start to see that 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 idea of, of that being the only pathway might not be the best idea for every student. So what a lot of school districts are doing are starting to create these multiple pathways. They're not eliminating calculus. They're not stopping kids from getting into calculus. They're just creating these alternatives. So, um, you know, coming out of the pandemic, a lot of us would have done a lot better if we had understood statistics and could pick up on how bad some of the graphs and and numbers that were shared were. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so a lot of schools are moving to this idea where after Algebra 2, you kind of, you make a choice of, are you going to go the calculus pathway? Are you going to go a statistics pathway? Or are you going to go to a different version, which could be analytical math? It could be business math. It could be computer science. Um, there are multiple other pathways that you could fill in for that third one. But what they're looking at is what is it that you want to do as a career? Which one of these makes the most sense? And then, you know, looking at, 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 what you, what college you're going to go to, what are the chances that you're going to take a remedial class again, or you're going to have to retake this class again, which one makes the most sense. Um, So they're not eliminating the idea of calculus or the push for calculus. It's just expanding that out. So every student has an opportunity to hit those advanced math classes.
0: What do you, what do they do for, let's say that a student is thinking about Maybe they don't know what they want to do. They want to go to community college or maybe they want to go right into the workforce or maybe they want to go into a trade. What kinds of things do we need to think about if kids are not necessarily sure if they want to go to college or if they know that they're probably going to do something else?
1: So one of the best things about growing up is that my brother is in the trades. He's an electrician. His best friend's a plumber. They do more math than I do as a math specialist writing curriculum all the time. Yeah. The plumber does calculus and he doesn't see it as calculus. He he uses the same formulas that we learned in calculus and he's using that to figure out how to get pipes into a wall and in, in mm-hmm. impossible angles. My brother's an electrician is is converting, um, you know, different versions of like elect- different things in electricity over and over again in his head. And both of them, if you ask them, you know, how much higher math do you do? Neither one of them would admit to it, but they are. Yeah. And I think getting our trades people into the schools, not just our 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 tech schools and our tech high schools, but actually bring them into our ninth grade classrooms and our eighth grade classrooms and, and having them actually present what they do. You know, every one of those trades guys is doing high order math, whether they made it to calculus or not. You know, they had to learn it on the job or they had to learn it through their internships and their apprenticeships. But they're doing higher order math. And I think it's really important for kids to understand that, you know, any kid who, who's thinking, I'm I'm going into a trade, I'm going to be a mechanic, I'm going to be a plumber, whatever it is, needs to understand that just because you're not going into a class that's called calculus, you're going to do the higher order math in one way or not to do your job well.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting, because when you think about what they do for freshmen, they tell you. If you think you're going to college, plan on taking four years of math. But if you don't think you're going to college, you might only have to take three years. But potentially, even if you're not going to go to college, if you're going to a trade, or if you aren't sure, it could still be beneficial for you to plan for, for taking four years of math.
1: Right. And I, I would push every every kid, no matter what you're going to do, take CS principles. It's a comp- Computer science class that can be taken in ninth grade. It's the only AP class that can be taken in ninth grade. It's the only AP class you can take without having algebra one done. So even if you haven't taken algebra one in ninth grade, you can take CS principles and take the test. And it's it's a generic like intro to computer science class. And the world that we live in, you know, with AI and machine learning and and, mm-hmm. and all these things that are coming out, having a basic understanding of how those things work is really, really important. Every job has a tech side to it now. So, you know, having SCS principles under your belt is is huge. And you get the AP class in ninth grade, and it could change your world. You know, a kid who thinks I'm never going to make it to AP can take a CS principles course ninth grade without Algebra 1. It's an amazing course to take as a freshman. Um, just get it out of the way and and get an understanding. And then you don't have to touch computer science again.
0: Yeah, does that so how does that fit in? Because I know at the elementary level, sometimes they are even introducing coding pretty mm-hmm. early on. So where does that fit in to all of this? Because that's I mean obviously it's not exactly the same as calculus, but you still have to have an it, it's still a lot of analytical skills
1: right, right in in elementary level, you're learning basic ideas of loops and um, patterns and step-by-step directions, right? So we can connect loops to the idea of, like, how do you you create a dance? Like, what are the moves for a dance? And kids are really good at doing that kind of stuff. Or what's your morning routine to get to school? And you can create that and then create a loop out of that. As you move up into middle school, you're learning the very basics of HTML, so how to build a website, You're learning the very basics of Java and JavaScript, so you can understand how to make animations. A few programs will teach you Python, like a um, a, um, a language in computer science, Um, but that's a little bit less than the other things. And then as you move up to high school and you get to see us principals, you're taking those ideas of HTML and JavaScript and the um, ideas of how algorithms work and loops and Yes, no, if, then, then this type um, algorithms. And you're taking all that and you're building um, you're building a project. So a lot of kids will build a game or they'll build like an interactive website, some idea of using all that knowledge that you built K through 8 in a new and unique way.
0: So really, it's the back end of when you're on a website or when you're in an app, it's just... You do something and something happens. And it's just right. all the language on the back end that makes those things happen. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Right. So elementary, middle school, you're learning the very basics of that. And and, and you can you can go to any website right now and you can pull up their, their back end and you can start to change the color. You can mm-hmm. change the font. It doesn't save or anything, but you can play around with it. And then um, they're, they're learning even how to create games, right? So I have um, kids in elementary school right now that are using um, um, different programs at the elementary level where they're, they're building their own video games and they come home and we can play them. And, and it's, it's awesome, but they take the, all that. And by the time they get to high school, now you can build build a real deal thing that anybody can use.
0: Yeah. That's well, I can just tell you in the in the tech space, those skills are very valuable right now. So definitely, it, even just for the problem solving element, but also for for what is for the way that the world is going when it comes to curriculum and just digital digital tools that can be yeah. really helpful. So, with on the other side, uh, moving back to the curriculum and the whole concept of equity, I know that. Part of equity is that if you don't have certain skills, you can't access higher level math concepts. So if you don't have the concept of fractions and you haven't developed that, that's an equity issue because now you can't move on to a more difficult math class and advance in your education and and all of those things. But then there's the aspect of teachers having access to good tools to teach these concepts you shared some really interesting statistics about how much time teachers spend Googling and Pinteresting and how that varies when they're serving different economic areas. Can you share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so uh, um, part of, I was fortunate enough to be part of the Clave Fellow Fellowship out of Ed Reports, and we, the job of, of the, this fellowship was to work on policy work. And everything I've been talking about are things that I've been doing through that um, fellowship and the policy work. And what Ed reports does um, at the end of every year is put out statistics on the curriculum market. And then they get with their thought partners who also share about other things that are happening in education. So how much um, time teachers are spending on Pinterest and Google and teacher Pay Teacher to find content. And um, like back in twenty th- 2016, so pre-pandemic, the Rand Corporation did a survey. And you know, so we're almost looking at almost 10 years ago, 96% of teachers out there were going to Google to find content on the side. Mm-hmm. And 75% of teachers out there that they surveyed were using Pinterest at the time. And and the numbers for teacher paid teacher are are really high as well. Yeah. That that whole idea of you needing to go outside of what's in front of you to solve a problem i think is really really frustrating and part of that is because when you actually look at the materials that are being pulled in that haven't been vetted that haven't been certified in certain states what you find is that that um only 20% of that material based on that same report was actually on grade level yeah and then if, if like there, there's, uh, TNTP put out this, this, um, article, which is amazing. It's called the opportunity myth. And what they found, and this came out in 2018. So pre pandemic as well, that out of the 720 hours that a typical teacher has to teach, 581 of those aren't on like high quality material. So you're talking about they're matching the rigor that's expected, the relevance that's expected. It's matching the actual standard. Um, you know, I I worked for a district that used a pretty common textbook and in fourth grade, our PA standard says that you have to do place value out to a million. And the textbook said it met our standard, but it only went out to a hundred thousand. Now that difference between a hundred thousand and a million, maybe that's not a big deal, but if there's one error there, there's going to be more errors throughout that book that don't actually match the standards that we have. And the same with the materials that we're pulling in that's happening. Um, my wife's a teacher, and I know every Sunday night, nobody can bother her because she's spending all that time trying to find content for the next week's worth of work. That it drives me insane. It's like if you bought, you know, the, the newest iPhone or the newest Google phone that came out. And, you know, I know like my, my parents zoom in on the screen. They make the letters as big as possible so they can read what's on the screen. Could you imagine having to pay to be able to zoom in on the screen? Or to have to pay, after paying thousands of dollars for the cell phone, now you have to pay to be able to use text-to-speech or speech-to-text. And all these extra pieces that we get, well, that's the same thing we're doing with our curriculum right now. We pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a curriculum, and then we have to pay on top of that training to be able to use that curriculum. And typically, that's one day, even one hour for some texts.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: and then we have our our students with special needs and our and our uh multilingual students that come in and the the curriculum that we have says, "Oh, we have a solution for that. it's just an extra sum of money and then we have to keep adding on and it gets to the point where you know this is why teachers are adding are are doing the Google searches and teacher pay teacher searches if i if I could do anything like if I was the Czar of, of education. I don't, I would eliminate that need to do those searches. We should have curriculum that actually meets the needs of our students and not just our middle students, like our, our advanced students, our struggling students and everybody in between. And mm-hmm. if we pay for a curriculum, we should get all that in one bucket. It shouldn't be extras, right? Nobody in their right mind would pay extras for their cell phone. So why are we paying for extras on something that we have to use every day?
0: Yeah. Well, and, and obviously with the teachers pay teachers or with the, whatever people are using, that's where you get the, the disjointed, you know, things aren't, it's not this nice, neat, linear progression of concepts from kindergarten all the way through the time that kids are going to college or or whatever they're doing after high school. So, and wasn't there something where with that report that, Depending on the area, that certain teachers that are serving different areas spend even more time looking for additional, wasn't it related to the um, like the cultural factors of the student population?
1: Yeah, so in that same uh 2016 RAND report, what they found was that students who receive free and reduced lunch tend to go to schools where teachers are doing more Google searching and Pinterest searching, they are also. Um, less likely to have content on grade level. And um, students that come from low-income families, and this is from a 2015 report um, from the um, by Smith, Burroughs, and Zoida, and I can give you the link to the report, but mm-hmm. they found that low-income students, again, were less likely to have high-quality materials in their school. Like uh, so, if, And to make this all make sense, so if we go to what every report's put out, Right. So this is 2020. So, right before um, the pandemic happened, out of all the materials, the math materials that Ed reports reviewed, only 41% were green that met the criteria, that, that had all the standards in it, had the mathematical practices in it, had things in there for multilingual learners, special ed students. They had uh, technology pieces in there. It was easy for the teachers to use. 41% of the materials reviewed. And if we look across the country, only 32% of the materials used across our country meet their standards. So if less than 50% of our schools are using high quality materials, less than a third of our schools are using high quality materials, and we're wondering why we need to have MTSS and we need to have all these interventions. And Mm -hmm. we haven't even started with the basic foundation of, of good materials in a lot of schools. And then you have students that are mostly free and reduced. Students that are in those schools that are heavily free and reduced tend to get even a lower shot of having higher quality materials. The, the one good thing that's coming out of the, the reading wars is that schools are pooling in high quality reading materials now because it's out there. It's on blast if you're not using it. And yeah. I wish that the same thing would happen with math that, you know, we could start calling out schools that aren't using high-quality materials and start to reverse this trend, I would love to see, even in the next couple years, hit 50% of the schools using high-quality materials. The number of students that would be saved if we could just start off with the basic understanding of good-quality materials would be amazing. And the the number of hours that a teacher could gain back and not have to search on Sunday night, it, it would be amazing for everything. We're losing so many teachers. Why don't we take the the easiest thing off their plate and have them not have to search for materials that they're already supposed to have in their classrooms.
0: Yeah. Well, that is, so now we just need another, you know, a podcast like sold a story, but science of math there, there's another project for you to take on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I know that we could probably keep going on about this because it's it's such an interesting topic, but um, this is a good place to wrap up. So where can people go to connect with you or um, just you know learn a little bit more about you?
1: Yeah, so the easiest place to find me while still live is Twitter. Um, my, my handle is at JRED530. I actually made that when I was in grad school as part of a, a grad class assignment oh, wow. and I've kept it up ever since. Um, I'm also LinkedIn and we can share the, the the link in the show notes to my LinkedIn, okay. but I am happy to share all the resources that I talk about. I'm happy to share my presentation that um, I presented at NCTM and I'm happy to talk to anybody about any of this. This is my passion project and uh, I, I love talking about it.
0: Yeah. Well, I think this will be really helpful because, like I said, we there's a huge push for literacy. And of course, that's so important. But we've got to think about math, too. So I, uh, I appreciate your time. And um, and like I said, it's I think this will be really helpful for people. So thanks so much for being here with me today.
1: Thanks for letting me on. This has been an amazing experience.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Please check the show notes for some of the links to where you can connect with Jonathan, as well as some of the fantastic resources that he mentioned in this episode. And also, if you are a related service provider, like a speech pathologist, social worker, counselor, school psychologist, or other provider, and you wanna help your team put executive functioning support in place in both the therapy services that they're getting, as well as across the day in their classrooms, then check out the School of Clinical Leadership. To learn more about the program, go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. If you have a suggestion for a guest, or if you're interested in being a guest on the show, just email me at me at I'm always looking for guests who are involved in education reform, leadership, and who are using their clinical or education skills in creative ways to make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time.